It's episode 84 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky, and joining me today is J.P. Breen, because Ryan's on vacation. Ryan's overseas, man. He decided, hey, the baseball season's starting. I'm going to leave the country. He's going to go to where the real baseball fans are, <laughs> the UK. Do they play, was it Rounders? That's what came from... Uh, yeah, uh, England. Yeah, yeah, rounders, and now they play a bunch of cricket. And to, let me tell you though, when I went over to to Ireland last summer, or two summers ago now, I guess, um, it was really pleasant to just sit and watch a game of cricket. I had no idea what, zero idea what was happening whatsoever. But it was seventy degrees, sunny, sitting out in the grass, just watching people like hit the ball and run after it. I would imagine that's what like seeing baseball for the first time is being in a really nice stadium outside and you're like this is actually kind of nice i have no idea what's happening on the field but this is actually quite nice did i imagine it, that's what ryan's doing did it feel more like pastoral like, um, like you just felt like you're watching people frolic in a field more so than baseball where they're you know in uniforms and everybody's you know a little bit more focused no because they they have like the helmets with the big like face masks on them too that's right that ball is a lot harder than a baseball yeah, yeah, and it was in the middle of uh, so like it was a huge green park, but it was still in the middle of Dublin. So it was it was very much like being in a park in a like a stadium that you would imagine, kind of like an outdoor outdoor baseball stadium. Of course, without such dramatic bleachers, but no, they were full full on uh, uniforms with all the padding and all of that, and they've got like the big face mask on. Um, yeah, it's pretty wild. I just have no idea what's happening like all the time whenever. And then suddenly they're like, oh, yeah, somebody had 150 runs. And I'm like, I don't need sure. Of course they did. <laughs> Whatever you say. So, well, it'll be annoying next week when Ryan returns and he's speaking with a British accent because you can guarantee that's going to happen. He's going to speak with a British accent and drink tea. Tea with oh, milk in it. There's nothing wrong with tea with milk in it. Come on. now. Yeah, but he doesn't do that. So that'll be like a huge change in basically the you know his lifestyle so we can all look forward to that and give him shit on twitter for that so uh hey you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing milwaukee's tailgate on apple podcasts and spotify we want listener questions so follow milwaukee's tailgate on twitter at mke tailgate email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our facebook page you can also follow the three of us on twitter and you'll find that in our milwaukee's tailgate twitter bio and finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash mketailgate. Our M&B and ball and glove patrons receive the monthly minor league extra podcast. Milwaukee's Tailgate is sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing and their English style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. You know them for the great beers like Dragon Flute, Block Party, and their flagship Fantasy Factory IPA. Right now, you can go out and get Raticat's New England IPA and Fruit Punch Fantasy Factory, which is made with mango, pineapple, and blackberry. And then on April 5th, Carbon 4 is re-releasing the boozy, hoppy, and incredibly drinkable Idiot Farm. Also, get 20% off merch in the K4 web store with the promo code MKETailgate. As always, check out Carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4, beer brilliance. Okay, so we actually have real baseball that counts to talk about this week, which is nice to get back into. Um, so the Brewers open the season with a win against the Cardinals, uh, bashing home runs all over the park. So that was good to see. Turns out they even bashed home runs all across the park when you know they lost too. Yes, yeah, Just we're we're gonna get into that because th this this lineup has a lot of power. Yeah, they do. Uh, but what I will say is. 
something that I might keep track of just because it's fun. Um, Brewers have a hundred percent record when Josh Hader's pitching. Well, yeah, the uh, Saturday night performance, I think everyone was buzzing about since it was a, an immaculate um, appearance with three, yeah, three batters, three strikeouts, nine pitches total. And nine fastballs total. Yes. I yeah. mean, when that ball's coming in at that angle, you know, with, with his delivery, it's kind of cutting in on everybody, especially if you're a right-handed batter. That thing really cuts in on you. Well, and it's and it's just like, if I don't remember where I saw it. It had to have been like Baseball America or something, but there was a camera angle of like right behind the catcher where you can see what it's like to see the ball coming from Josh Hader and it's just like legs and then elbow. And then suddenly the ball's there just because just like the way that he throws it, it's like the ball is kind of behind his elbow and then all of a sudden just appears. It's just the weirdest thing. But yeah, I mean, obviously we, we don't necessarily know what happens on Sunday, but uh, taking first two out of three from the Cardinals, don't think anybody can complain with that. It's It's a good start to a tough, tough month, to be honest. And as we saw on Friday, the Cardinals are good and they can hit. And Paul Goldschmidt is a significant uh, addition to that lineup. Yeah, yeah. Paul Goldschmidt is like the kind of is is the kind of hitter that like I really enjoy watching in in the batter's box. It's it's a lot like kind of Joey Votto. It reminds me a little bit of like when Albert Pujols was with the Cardinals. It's even just the way that he takes pitches. It's just like. He sees it really early and he goes, yeah, don't want that one. And and he just like has an air about him where he knows exactly what he's doing at the plate. And obviously, you know, he still strikes out. It's not like he's 100 percent perfect, but he's 100 percent in control of what he wants to be doing at the plate. And even when he was struck out by uh, it was a it was an outside fastball coming from Brandon Woodruff on on Saturday. And it was clear that he was looking for he was looking for a slider just like he had gotten before, and he was able to get a base hit off of it. And he was with two strikes. He was looking slider. He got a ninety-five mile an hour fastball in the outside corner. He didn't even didn't even wait for the strikeout call. He was like, yeah, wasn't looking for that pitch. Turned around, just walked away. Yeah, and I think what's amazing about Goldschmidt is he's a big guy who hits with a lot of power. But when he swings, you don't go, oh, here's a guy taking just like a massive hack. Like yeah. it's a very compact, controlled swing. From a yeah. very big man, so yeah, yeah, it's a big dude. He's, he's going to be an absolute terror. What for the next? Could be six years, I guess. Yeah, because it's five, this season it, and then a five-year extension. Is it a five-year extension after this year, or did he sign a five-year contract? I don't, I, I don't remember which one it was. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't have the details. I assume it was an extension. Either way, he's going to be annoying for the next half dozen years. Yeah. So, anyways, opening day was fun. Uh, Yuli Shasin had the start, and it was all right. Again, yeah. it's a tough Cardinals lineup, but he, he got through five and a third. He gave up three runs, um, but it you know definitely kept the Brewers in it and allowed that offense um, to basically come and pick him up. Yeah, and I mean, we saw this, what, I, I should have looked it up, but I think last April, Chassin wasn't actually all that good for his first few starts, and everybody was, that was like the moment where everyone was like, why didn't they sign you know Lance Lynn? Why didn't they sign Alex Cobb? What's all this? They just went in with Yuli Chassin. And I think we even kind of looked at him too and said, you know, man, he, I just don't really see what the, the slider's kind of good, but it doesn't really have its snap yet. The fastball's nothing all that special. You know, we were just like, he's going to be a back end guy who can soak up a lot of innings. And then he just got sharper and sharper and sharper as the season went on. So I'm not, 
it was it was encouraging certainly to see Chassin get through and just keep the team in it so they can keep going. But I would imagine, much like last year and the year prior, he's going to get better and better as the year goes, just as he gets more comfortable, he gets more settled in, uh, and we'll see the slider get better. Yeah, and he helps his own cause in the game uh, with a big bomb in the I, fifth inning. He got, it. he got a piece of that. That was not that wasn't a cheapie either. Like yeah. he he crushed it. Like that was deep in the Brewers bullpen. I know. I I actually really regretted that he wasn't the first one to hit the home run because I would have messed up the prop, prop bets. Oh, that would have yeah totally thrown stuff off. But instead, it was yeah Mustakis with the first home run, which I want to say like eighteen percent of people in the prop bets picked. Yeah, Andy said yeah. Andy said it was eighteen percent. Um, yeah, he he hit an absolute bomb to center. Yeah, he did, and then Yelich hit the first of his. Uh, well, he, he's opened the season so far with a home run each night, which I think two of them have gone opposite field. Yeah, two of them gone opposite field, and if you actually take it back to his previous uh, spring training game, in which he decided he didn't want to play spring training anymore, and he had the deal if he hit a homer, he didn't have to play anymore. And so, really, the last four games he's played and he's hit a homer. Yeah, but I mean, what's interesting is Yelich is maintaining that opposite field power, which I think really. Um, gave him that boost the second half of uh, 2018. Like that's where we saw a real big power increase. Was he was hitting that? He was driving the ball to left center in a way that I think made him even more difficult for lefties to try to get out. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. And you know, and I guess this is a question for you. I was trying to think about it. Do you think he is consciously trying to hit for power more? And, and he's just like in a spot in which he experienced a kind of a, a an uptick in power. He didn't he's obviously not changing his swing. I don't think that's anything, but he, he is much more comfortable trying to impact the ball rather than just trying to put the ball in play. Um, is it is it confidence related? Because I don't think it's swing related, but I wonder, I wonder if part of it is playing in Miller Park. He feels yeah. like. He's not going to get penalized for hitting fly balls the way he did when he was in Miami. When you're playing in a big park and you're hitting the ball hard, but stuff's you know dying right around the uh, um, the wall there and turning into outs, you know, then you have to kind of play your game to just hit line drives and hit you know get base hits. Where yeah. I don't know if now he feels like, oh, those balls that were just falling short in Miami, now I can hit home runs in Milwaukee. Yeah, I mean that could be. I, I and that's a, that's a guess. I don't know. Well, right. Yeah, I mean the whole thing. Yeah, we're just speculating because part of it could be that the organization told him to. You know, we'd like for you to try to hit more home runs. We don't really care if your average drops a little bit. We'd like for you to hit for more power. I don't necessarily know how that goes because I don't think his change his swing has changed. He's not actually hitting more fly balls than he used to. He's just the ones that he does hit. He's hitting for more power. Um, I like. I would love it if basically he looked at Ryan Braun last year and he's like, man, if I hit line drives all over this park, people are going to catch him. It's not a big park. I better just hit it over the outfield. Yeah. Yeah. And that could be um, Mustakas is showing off his power. Again, he was another guy who went opposite field, um, showing off that opposite field power, which, again, I think goes to how much power this lineup has. Yeah. How does your prop bet feel? Well, I, I went over on both. Uh, Sean Moustakis and then when I actually like did the prop bet online I changed to the over for the team home runs oh shit I thought you were joking no I did I did no you actually cheated oh you cheated and changed it all right I'll, I'll allow it 
I did because I was thinking about it. It it seemed like one of those Ryan hedges where I was trying to say, oh, Moustakis and Shaw are going to hit over 60 combined, but somehow they're not going to hit over, you know, 231. And then the more I thought about it, I'm like, that's dumb because if those two do it, plus you have Yelich and, you know, Aguilar and Grandall, I'm like, yeah, they'll, they'll probably be able to do it. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, they've got, it's, it's really it's nice to see down in the seven spot, you know, you still got like Grandall down there and you're just like, you're like last year it was basically what the sixth spot was. You had Aaron and Perez as you had or anything, or you had, uh, was Jet Bandy still here last year for a bit? Oh I'm God. When, I forget when Jet, Jet Bandy was here, but like either way, it was just, and then you had Orlando Arcia, and it was just basically you had to get everything done in the first five every single time, no matter what. And then Braun was still struggling a little bit, even though he was hitting the ball hard. And it was just pretty much down the board for a while. It was Kane and Yelich. And if Kane and Yelich didn't do it, and maybe I guess Aguilar for a little bit in the first half. But yeah, this, this team has power potential throughout. They've got the ability to hurt you throughout and they've got the ability to hit for so much power and score so many runs. And you look at, you know, Grant all did nothing, uh, Aguilar, nothing. And they were still able to produce quite a bit in terms of, of their power production. Um, even Ryan Braun already got into the act and he had an absolute bomb. Yeah. Braun showing off his power early was a good sign. Um, so like I said, we had some short starts so far, uh, from Shasin was about what we'd expect. Get into the sixth inning for him, uh, well, especially, for the, especially for the first start of the year. Yes. And it, again, against this Cardinals lineup, it's going to be tough to get around. Um, so Woodruff went five innings, um, Peralta went three. Sorry. I'm yeah. Looking, I'm looking it up right now. To, yeah. He might've gone, he might. I don't think he started the fourth inning. I think he just went three. Yeah, so he gave up four runs in three innings. Um, well, they, he had a forty. He had a forty pitch first inning or a thirty nine pitch first inning, if I remember correctly. So it wasn't. Which again, that's kind of that's kind of Peralta's thing. We're going to know early on whether or not he's going to give a great start or it's going to be a struggle, hoping that he can get far enough that he doesn't blow the bullpen. Yeah, absolutely, and that was why I thought Peralta in the in the bullpen doesn't really make any sense. Yes, yeah, for a slow starter to come out, I don't. I, sometimes I'm not sure about that. I, you know, Anderson went to the bullpen. We'll see how he handles it. And I don't think he was a guy that you'd say, oh, you know, just send him out there. He's ready to go right away. He's been a starter his entire career. Yeah, but I don't think he Anderson's not the guy out that you're just like, well, he might, you know, he might walk the first two batters because we don't really know what we've got coming. Yeah. Um, so, uh, junior Guerra seems to be the guy who's paired with Josh Hader right now in soaking up some important innings in the games that they're leading in. So we, we had the, the two innings save from Hader on, uh, opening day. And then Saturday Hader came in for the, um, immaculate inning that everybody was buzzing about online were nine pitches, three outs, three strikeouts. And used as a traditional closer. Yes. Which... Was that? Do you think that was partly a function of the fact that he had pitched two innings two days prior? I mean, maybe. I I could have easily. I think it was just. To me, I think it was they just wanted the they want to take games against the Cardinals. They know that they're going to have to, um, because in some ways, even if he had pitched two, 
innings the time before, had a day off, and then it was kind of his day to go again. I think you could have made a pretty strong argument to say, you know, wait until Sunday and let him go multiple innings if needed. But of course, who knows if he's going to even be needed at, at all on, on Sunday. And you can't necessarily just keep trying to hold him back only to pitch him in the perfect scenario. But what we've seen, so so they play Sunday against the Cardinals, uh, Monday day off, right? Oh, now I got to check the schedule. Uh, Monday the first, they're uh, playing Cincinnati. Oh, so they don't have a day off. Okay, no, they don't I have don't... a day off until Thursday the fourth. Okay, so I because I was thinking if they did, you know, they've shown that he, they will throw him on back to back days, but only for an inning. That that he could go for an inning on Sunday again, knowing he'd have a day off. But now, I would imagine that if he goes for an inning, he'll obviously need a day off. But I would imagine that they probably will try to not use him on Sunday to try to give him a full full berth on on Monday yeah well and I think also in regards to using him in the ninth against the Cardinals on Saturday they were able to hold that Cardinals lineup to two runs to that point you had a four to two lead and I think you have to take those games when you can when they're in hand when you have the ability to send the right guys out there to win that um, you have to do it because on any given day we saw on Friday night's game like Goldschmidt goes off, and that whole lineup has been hitting. Colton Wong's been a pain in the ass for this entire series. So yeah, he has been. Um, well, and like, I also thought about it too, and I was like, if you didn't throw Hater, who were you going to put? Like, who were who were you going to in a game that you know, early season game against the team that you presumably are going to be fighting atop the NL Central with that you want to try to take as many games from it as you can? Who were you going to go to? I guess it would have been Jacob Barnes, I guess, which. He well, and that, the that's the thing. On Friday, they brought in Taylor Williams. He gave up a home run. Uh, they brought in Jacob Barnes. He gave up a home run, and he gave up three runs. Um, you know, Chase Anderson gave up another run. So that that Friday game kind of showed some of the arms that we're hoping for. You know, it's early season against a good team, and I wouldn't expect them to go out and be perfect at this point. Yeah, they are. It's they kind of are who we thought they were, right? And. I will say that uh, Albers looks decent uh, in terms of just like his velocity being there. He's got, you know, his his off speed stuff looks OK. Um, did you see did you have a chance to see Alex uh, Alex Wilson come in on Saturday against Goldschmidt? Yes. Yeah, he actually like that. That cutter's pretty good. Yeah, um, he, he carved up. He carved up Goldschmidt pretty good. And that was something that we can enjoy this year, but not next season because Claudio came in for two batters and then they yanked him for Wilson. I think that's how it went. I don't remember if he got two or three. I thought it was three because he was going to go Wong and then got, I think, Jose Martinez. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, he gave up a hit. So he faced three batters, even though he only pitched two-thirds of an inning. Yeah, because uh, Carpenter would have let off the the inning before. That's right. Before before Goldschmidt, so. I keep watching for that this season because it's the last time we're going to be able to to see that where they to do see, oh. situational in an inning. I'm like, well, we better enjoy it now. These mid mid inning commercial breaks because those should go away next season. When you're you're thinking about all of that glorious strategy that that you've got going on, I mean, the most frustrating thing. So we watched, um, I watched Friday night's game with, with some family. And we were just commenting on like how slow the game was on Friday. It was unbelievably slow. And 
one of the most interesting things was every single time the Brewers got somebody on base, the Cardinals, because they've been paranoid about this for a long time, especially Yadier Molina all the way back from when, you know, La Russa was there. They think that the Brewers are always stealing signs at, at Miller Park. And so they're continuously trying to change, you know, the signals, but they aren't necessarily on the same page. And so they're kind of, you know, not being able to kind of sync up between the pitcher and Molina. And because mound visits are tracked, they don't want to use the mound visits. And so they end up just like recycling three or four times and they kind of just back off. And it actually causes, you know, it's an unintended consequence of trying to limit the, the stoppages in time or for between, you know, in, in actual like at bats. It actually causes more problems because you sometimes you need mound visits. And that's why it's one of the most stupid thing that they're trying to do in the Atlantic League is trying to get rid of mound visits altogether. And I was like, well, what are you going to do when you get crossed up? That's dangerous. Well, and again, I think part of the issue with trying to limit the mound visits is I don't mind if they want to say, hey, you know, uh, coaches and managers can't constantly trot out onto the field. But the yeah. idea that the pitcher and catcher can't, you know, be in contact like that seems a little ridiculous. That's where it's over the top. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because like you saw both teams really struggling with it where they were like, we can't communicate. We're, we're not quite on the same page of what we want to be able to do here, but we can't go talk to each other. So might as well just let, have the, you know, they just kept doing the like, let's do it again motion to the, the ump where they're just like, we need to redo that. And it was like three or four times in the same at bat, especially against Ryan Braun and then Braun hit a homer and he was clearly upset with Molina. Yeah, <laughs> which is one of my favorite things. Yeah, I mean, I think it also doesn't help. Again, you have two lineups that hit with a lot of power, and they have some patient hitters. You're going to have the Brewers are going to play some slow games this season. It's yeah, just absolutely. the lineup. Yeah, and and it was just we were trying to figure it out, and part of it was kind of the stoppages mid at bat. But the other thing was every every at bat seemed like it was going seven eight pitches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's going to be a consequence again of watching a team that hits with a lot of power has veteran hitters, and they're able to take pitches. They're going to take walks and stuff as well. So, you know, it's going to look like some of those classic uh, mid-aughts um, Yankees-Red Sox games. Because that was. It was a four-hour game on on Friday night. Yeah. Well, part of that was usually because it was on, like, ESPN, and they were doing extra long breaks. But a lot of it was the fact that they had really great hitters, and, and they were just absolutely grinding out at bats every single time. Yeah. So, um, okay. Christian Yelich again with the showing off the power early in the season. Um, and he's made some fans lives a little bit, uh, more enjoyable right now. I know you were, you were amused by that, right? Yeah. I saw the, I saw the little kid that they had, you know, if Yelich hits a home run, my dad will buy us a puppy. He had that big sign that he was going on. And I was going to come to Steve, who is our, our, our resident parent. <laughs> and, do you think, right? So, like, I saw two things on there because, in some ways, uh, everyone was like, oh man, that dad didn't really want to get his kids a puppy. He was really just banking on the fact that Yelich wasn't going to hit a homer for the third day in a row, all this stuff. And I was like, you know what? Basically, if you implant the idea in your, in your kid's head that there is a possibility of getting a puppy, you've pretty much resigned to the fact that you're going to get the puppy. I mean, oh, is, that yeah. a, is that a strong dad move or is that just like a way to try to get your kid on TV? No, he they, they were ready to get the puppy. I, I think there's no question there. It was going to happen regardless of Yelich hitting a home run or not. If they did not want a puppy, he would have said, hey, if Orlando Arcia hits a home run, I'll get you a puppy. 
And then I think it would have been hedging his bet that like, no, yeah, I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> so you think you don't no, pick no. Christian Yelich as the guy and then say, but I don't really want to get a puppy for these kids. Right. Pick somebody else. Pick Lorenzo Cain if you're going to do that at least. That way you get somebody somebody good, but you know, at least you don't have, you know, massive power that you're expecting like a home run any day. Yeah, or you or you try to convince your kid that like you're there on the Brandon Woodruff start and you'd be like, he did it last time against against Kershaw, right? So like it could uh, actually Brandon Woodruff did poke one down the the right field line for a base hit. <laughs> yeah, Wood, Woodruff is still swinging swinging that stick, so uh, yeah. that was good to see as well. Yeah, Brewers pitchers are hitting early, so um, who needs who needs the DH? Uh, what what else? When when else am I going to be able to see Lee Shasin hit a 420 foot bomb? Yeah, exactly. It's it's still fun. I mean, the idea that like a DH just completely changes the game and, you know, obviously it's going to have an impact. But a lot of those pitchers, they they still got a bat in their hands. It's not like they don't do anything up there. And look, I've, I'm pretty well people of listeners to the podcast. know I like weird. I like weird stuff. I want stuff to happen that I don't normally see. And when that's Yuli Shasin all of a sudden hitting a homer, that's something that just is something that I'll remember throughout the rest of the season. I won't remember, you know, a home run hit by even Moustakas' like first home run of the season. I won't remember that, but everyone will be like, remember when Shasin hit that homer? And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. That was, that was great. So uh, we got a little bit of bad news on the second day of the season. They held it back a little bit. They didn't they didn't inform everybody right on opening day. But Corey Knable is going to be out for the season. He opted to have Tommy John surgery on his not completely torn UCL. But like more torn than it had been torn, basically. Yeah. So it, it seemed to be a little bit of a time bomb that they were managing. And it got to the point where he decided for himself that it would be better to get it fixed and basically be ready for next season. Um, if not right at the beginning of the season, early on at some point, he should be able to come back in 2020. Yeah. And I think that was one of the big things that council tried to make very clear to reporters is he was like, they were like, and then you'll make the decision on what's going to happen. And he said, no, Corey will make the decision on what he's going to do. It's his, he's pitched with it for four years. It's gotten a little bit worse and he's going to still make the decision on whether or not he wants to rehab, try to pitch through it again, or if he wants to you know optic opt for tommy john surgery and and clearly the news kind of came back where he opted for for the latter and i don't think that as much as people try to say you know well you know just get it done and and then you can come back and because the success rate for tommy john surgery now is so high that everybody just kind of takes for granted that he'll be able to come back and be the guy that he was but at the same time you have to imagine for canable sitting out the year in which uh, sitting out a year in which you are expected to compete that's hard right like you only get so many years throughout your career in which you're going to be with a team that is competitive and we'd like to think that the brewers will continue to be competitive in 2020 but there's no guarantee for that and to sit out a year in which you are expected to compete for if not take the nl central crown that's a big decision for somebody to take yeah, that is tough, but you know, again, for his his career long term, you know, he feels it's the right decision. Um, so I think everybody should probably be on board with that. We do have yeah. a Patreon question from Adam Post. Yes, with Knable out and Jeffress still building up arm strength, how do you see the Brewers handling the ninth inning? Will there be an assigned closer, or will they play each game based on matchups? And Jeffress is working his way back right now. Uh, yeah, progress seems to be good he's he's on a trajectory to get back and not have any major issues 
Yeah, he's apparently throwing every like he's pitching side sessions every three days at this point, and they're kind of ramping him up to be able to go out on a rehab outing. Um, but I think we've seen they're going to try to use Hater when they can, if it makes sense. Um, I kind of thought that that Garo might be the guy that they used when Hater wasn't the case, but as you've you know you've pointed out, they've they've been trying to almost pair Gara and Hater at the this moment. Um, whether that's going to happen continuously, I'm not sure. I would have to imagine that non-hater days are just going to be matchups unless somebody takes a step forward and really just like absolutely claims it because I don't even know who it would be at this moment. No. Yeah. I'm not really sure who else they would trust, especially if Gara is the guy who, if you get a decent but short start, they feel like he can go a couple innings when it's not quite time for hater to come in and um, lock things down because, you know, they showed that the, Opening day, they brought Hater in in the eighth with the idea that he could go two innings. So it, it's really hard to say at this point. Yeah, I mean, I I do feel like if it works out, like it, it'll be matchup based, but if a bunch of lefties are coming up, I would imagine Claudio might get it, might get a run at it. Um, but if it's if it's right-handers, maybe. I mean, is it going to be Matt Albers? It could be. I mean, I didn't. Elvers has looked decent so far. The strike zone's been rough in this opening series. Like, yeah, I you know it's been a bit inconsistent. By the way, have you ever seen more uh, called strikes when guys try to hold up their swing than you have this series? There's been a couple guys. Kane got rung up on a strike, uh, and who else did? There were a couple well, of them. So I, far. I know Thames did. Thames did. Thames did. Yes. Yeah. And like. It I just seems I, like at home that doesn't happen that often, and it's already happened a couple times in like the opening series this season. I guess I hadn't really noticed it outside the Thames one, but that was because he turned around and you know yelled at yelled at the ump that that was that was effing terrible. He he uh, like hulked out on him. Yeah, he was super mad. But then you like saw the replay, and I was like, yeah, yeah, he might have gone. I uh, really most know. most of those are he might have gone though, and they yeah. don't typically get rung up. I know, but. I mean, are we straying into Ryan there trying to support the Cardinals territory, or is this just you're just saying like, oh, it's it's an interesting thing? Both. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I can't good. claim I can't claim that the idea that they're they're playing the Cardinals and that has played into my thought process in the fact that like these calls are going against the Brewers isn't part of it. Like yeah. that's that's always an issue, especially when you're playing the Cardinals. You're kind of like, okay, is this legit? Like the ump thought that, or is this just another freaking Cardinals thing that we're dealing with? You know, in this series. So um, I actually didn't notice that. I didn't notice the like the the hold up strikes as much as I noticed kind of the weird balk calls. Yeah, two balks already this season, well, and one being called on Eric Thames, which I guess I didn't even realize was a was possible. Is that how that was called? It was on Thames? Yeah, they called the balk on Thames because Thames was not on first base and didn't make a motion to go back to first base when he when he got it thrown to him. Huh. Which like I guess I I guess is a rule, but I guess I hadn't thought about it. But yeah. it's it makes sense, right? It's not it's not it's why you can't just like be a pitcher with somebody with nobody on base and just like turn around and throw it to the shortstop for no good reason and then throw it back to you and reset. Like you have to try, I guess. Yeah. I get, yeah. It, it's weird. It's again, 
weird stuff early in the season always stands out too because you feel like oh it's such a small sample and all these weird things are happening when yeah over yeah. the course of the season it'll it'll even out and you get all that weird stuff and you don't even notice it by what july everybody in july is like well the game's on i'm kind of paying attention right well but like i also remember because uh anthony rizzo did what what thames did last year all the time is he didn't stand on first base he stood off of it but he must have like always turned around to like give a fake tag or like kind of like turn to go back to first base a little bit it was the fact if you watch it like thames is standing probably i don't know three four feet off the base on the inside of the 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 base path uh woodruff throws it to him he catches it doesn't even turn to first base doesn't even look at anything just catches it throws it right back and then they call it a balk and council comes out and is like what the what the fuck is happening and they pointed at thames and and then out and piece it together from there and it was just it was i'd have never called i've never seen that call before yeah um, i guess he needs to at least swing his glove towards the guy to fake a tag or like take a step back or something i don't know so yeah anyways uh tom hardercourt wrote that the brewers are prepared to go with what they have in the bullpen um kind of throwing some cold water on the idea that they'll go out and sign kimbrell or even go out and get keichel he says it's not in the brewers budget um do you think that's completely true or is that a little bit of posturing you know somebody from the club's kind of planting that because they had been talking to kimbrell and keichel before the season started like they, if they had no money, they probably wouldn't have been in discussion with them at all. Yeah, I think it's it's certainly posturing what we see all the time, especially even during trade trade discussions where there's like, oh, well, we can stay with what we've got. We're interested in looking, but we don't need to buy. It's just like if you're, you know, you're going out for a car or whatever and you're not going to they'll be like, well, what are you doing? Just, oh, I'm just I'm just looking. No, I'm happy with my car. I'm just I'm just looking. Uh, but. Yeah, I think I think Hodricourt has fallen into the trap of trying to to gain an idea of what the Brewers budget is or could be based on past numbers, um, which has been something we've talked about here in the past and something that's kind of been exploded through the fact that, you know, we kind of looked at past numbers and said they don't really have any money in the budget. And then they signed Grandall and signed, you know, Moustakis. And so that's kind of just been exploded. And well, again, the, the opening day budgets at, or uh, payrolls at one hundred twenty-two and a half million dollars. Um, I think the previous high was around one hundred ten million dollars. But yeah. we're also going back to like 2011, 2012, I think for that. Yeah, and they're making yeah, a lot more money in baseball now than they were, you know, even six, seven, eight years ago. Well, and it's about the same if you just like take inflation into account, um, right? Like an extra like two percent every single year. Mm-hmm. That's about like in terms of of real money that's about this i mean it's a little more but it it's it's within spitting distance like every year you should expect either via inflation or via all these ad money that's coming in they should be able to spend more than they have in the past um and they're coming off a season where they made a postseason run and they're coming off of a few seasons in which they had rock bottom payrolls and that like hypothetically if you read what rob manfred says he says the the team's pocketed they they don't just pocket the the extra uh profit they they hold it back and then they use it for payrolls in which they're trying to win a championship uh which you know we've seen no evidence for but it, hypothetically that's what the brewers could be doing but it it just gets into this this idea that we have an entire black box and we don't know what the team has to spend what they don't have to spend uh it's designed to be that way but 
I agree with you that I think if they didn't have any money, uh, if there were no funds available, they wouldn't even be engaging in conversations with Kimbrel. And I, I take your, because we were talking about this a little bit beforehand. You were saying that like the price point might not be what the brewers want or what, you know, Kimbrel wants. And so they're just kind of haggling over that. I wonder if Kimbrel still wants a long-term deal and coming to Milwaukee in which it's a, it is still kind of either a, a flexible bullpen in which you're not going to be the guy in the ninth inning all the time. Or you know that if you sign a long-term deal and you've got Corey Knebel coming back in the year, then you, you've got a guy who's been successful for the team as a closer that you could potentially lose your spot to. I don't, I don't necessarily think Kimbrell thinks that, you know, he's probably not going to have too much self-doubt in terms of like his ability to, to lose or gain the, the closer's role. But like, do you think that there is a possibility that he looks at the Brewers and says, I might take a one-year deal there, but I don't want to take a long-term deal there because either A, you know, maybe it's he doesn't want to live in Milwaukee. I don't know. Uh, it could be just that he doesn't necessarily want to be in a place in which they're being progressive with their bullpen rolls. I mean, the interesting thing about Milwaukee is, you know, you have Yelich locked up for a bunch of seasons. You have Kane locked up for a bunch of seasons. You have a young core as well. I think a player like that could look at Milwaukee and at least say they're competitive now. And with a front office that's running the team well, they should be competitive for a few years to come. And if you come with, quote unquote, closer pedigree that Kimbrell has, it seems like he'd probably be pretty locked in in that spot because the team likes to use Hater flexibly. We saw they still, you know, even with uh, Knable out, they still want to use Josh Hader for multiple innings. And you're going to need more arms, especially late in the game. And Kimbrell would fit that. So they could go back to using Hader how they wanted to and then still have kind of that um, shutdown for guy. For this year, at least. I, well, they could do it for multiple years if, if Kimbrell right, decided then, to do it. Because then, I don't think if Corey Knable... When he returns, I don't think Corey Knebel has some kind of claim that he can say, I'm going to take that role from Craig Kimbrell, who yeah, has been one of the better closers in the league for, I don't know, is it close to a decade? Yeah, it's something like, no, it's a, it's a good point. I'm just trying to like, and and at the same time, like there's probably a sense for Kimbrell to say, if you are willing to wait until June or July, all of these teams that generally go out and spend in prospects to go and get, you know, a Brad hand or, you know, whoever, like everybody's always trying to get a better bullpen by the time that the summer rolls around. If Kimbrell can come in and say, all you have to do is give me money and you get the best reliever on the market. I mean, maybe he's going for that because in some ways I'm sure he looks at the Cubs and says, I, your bullpen's a mess. I don't know why you're not trying to give me any money. You didn't spend anything all winter. I still think and the so, Brewers the Brewers should be motivated to get it done before that point because they already kicked their third round pick signing Grandall. So every free agent yeah. that comes with a, a comp, you know, that they have to give up one of their picks with to sign from this point forward is an even less valuable pick they're giving up. Sure. But if he waits until after the MLB draft, then he's not attached to any pick anymore. And then But that's why I'm saying the Brewers right now should be motivated to get it done before that point. Because oh, other sure. teams might be saying, we don't want to give up the pick because we have a more valuable pick we have to give up. The Brewers can say, yeah, we have to give up a pick, but it's like a fourth rounder. And you know what? Craig Kimball is probably going to give you more valuable than whatever fourth rounder you draft. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, it does seem like 
according to his his agent, he's he's still throwing regularly. He's still uh, what he's throwing against minor leaguers, or is he throwing against? He's throwing against somebody. He's not just throwing side sessions. I forget because I think there have been reports of both what Kimbrell and Keuchel have been doing while they they wait out their contracts that they're trying to get. Do you think either of them have had any, and this is all just speculation. I'm not trying to say that I know this for a fact. Do you think either of them have anything scary in their medicals that teams are afraid of? Uh, I mean, Keuchel's not a guy who throws real hard. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm, I and he he's not young, so I'm sure there's a little bit of like you know if he if his velocity declines anymore, how useful is he going to be? I think his is more just a an age and, and type of pitcher kind of issue, and he's had injury problems. I know, but I just have like a really hard time, and and maybe I shouldn't be surprised. I just have such a hard time believing that no one is willing to sign either one of them. Like Keuchel, yeah, he's he, but he's a solid number three starter, and we saw. You know, guys like Mark Burley make a career out out of that and regularly like wanting to come in and be that guy. Um, And Kimbrell, everyone wants their bullpen to be better. Kimbrell's the one that I'm a little surprised by. Because I can see where Keuchel has an idea of what his value is and what he wants to get on the market. And teams saying, you're not that valuable. Like we can bring in young arms at the back of our rotation and dream on it a little bit. And for the difference in what we're going to pay, it's worth taking that gamble. Yeah. You know, we're Kimbrel, you can slot him in. And I think you have a better idea of what you're going to do to lock down bullpens. And we saw, you know, we, we've seen multiple times because, you know, we're talking about what the Brewers did with their bullpen last season, but it goes back to when Kansas city won the world series. Like they did it on the back of a really good bullpen as well. Um, and there's a ton of teams you can always go back through and find like the great bullpens that that carry him through a postseason. And Kim- Kimbrel's a guy that can do that. So I guess maybe some of that is teams will be willing to spend on Kimbrel when they know exactly where they're at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably right. So we'll we'll see what happens there. Um, we have a Patreon question from PV Brew Crew, and he asks, uh, "Will we see Hernan Perez get a few starts at shortstop with the current roster, or is it Orlando Arcia who's going to play every day, every game, every inning?" It's yeah. I mean, he's got to get time, right? You would think that Arcia is going to need you know occasional rests. It's he hard to play shortstop. He doesn't have a hit yet, does he? I don't think he has a hit through the three games. I'd have to go back and check. I don't expect much from him because he still looks all out of whack when he's up at the plate. Yeah. I mean, but, he but, on Saturday night's game, it looked like he had one that he he tried to put a charge into and it just kind of died in the middle of left field. Well, I don't even think he got to left field. It, no, he had one that did. He had one that did. And it looked like one that went off the bat with a little more authority. And that's all the further it went. So I was like, oh, that's not a great sign. I thought. He had one that, like, off the bat, I thought was a liner to the gap, and it, like, didn't get over the shortstop's head, which was which was tough. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what they do there, how often they're willing to play him at shortstop. I, I still think that RC is going to get most of the time there. Are you concerned about um, either Shaw or, or Kane, in which they kind of, like, had hand-wrist troubles in terms of, like, because... Because uh, Kane, what, jammed his thumb into the base on, on Friday night trying to slide in and kind of got checked out for a little bit. And then Shaw got hit 
what looked like on the hand. I couldn't really tell. Yeah, but they were like, well, the one that hit Shaw, it looked like it kind of grazed his arm or something before it hit him in the hand. Okay. So that it looked bad at first, and I'm sure it still hurt like hell, but it looked like it, it did kind of ricochet, so hopefully that limited the impact there. The Kane one, I mean, he came out with the glove to run on Saturday night. Um, Which I'm always surprised that guys, like all guys, don't do that. I was terrified that he like tore a tendon in his thumb like immediately when I saw it. Yeah, and I mean, for a guy who doesn't hit with a lot of power, I'd hate to see him get some kind of thumb injury that they're like, well, you can still play, and then he has basically no power. Yeah. You know, until they finally decide like this thumb injury is too bad. But it's hard to say, well, you know, sit Lorenzo Cain because we see how much of an impact his defense has. Oh, we, didn't even, we didn't even mention. Yeah, we didn't his, even. <laughs> we didn't even mention that what he did on Thursday. That was an incredible catch. I wasn't able to see it excited to teach, but um, but it was a. Uh, I saw the replay of it, and he was absolutely hyped. Everybody was well. It was awesome. You have opening day. You have Hater going out there, you know, for two innings, and he's shutting guys down. And when you know a guy finally does really make some solid contact on him, yeah, you have Kane to go out there and track it down right at the wall. So yeah. that was that was an incredible catch, and again, that's a big reason why you get Lorenzo Cain. Absolutely, like, he's 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 an excellent hitter, but that defense is incredible. And uh, so MLB.com has their like must, you know, it says like must see catch or like whatever, but they end up showing uh, the Brewers video feed, you know, the Euchre call, and then both the radio and television call from the Cardinal side as well, and it was really funny to like. I enjoyed listening to the Cardinals uh, TV and, and radio feed. Um, I think that the TV feed was really one of them. I can't remember which one it was, but uh, one of the Cardinals feeds was like, there was like, oh, wow, he made an incredible catch. And they just like kept going. And then one of them was like, ball's going up, came back. And then all of a sudden he goes, and it, he caught it. And it was just like pure disappointment coming through. It, just deflated. Really they thought they were going to get a big dramatic uh, extra inning game on opening day. And yep, that was it. But it was just like the, it was incredible because it was watching the it was like hearing the voice absolutely drop from the Cardinals announcer and like the entire crowd absolutely go nuts. And just the the disconnect between the two emotions was really in, it was entertaining. It was yeah, nice. it was great. And hopefully we see that a bunch more this season. Uh, we have a question from Steven Anderson on Twitter. Uh, Moustakis hasn't turned a double play yet in spring or in the first three games. He's had at least one good chance on Friday. Should the crew be worried and considering moving Shaw back to second base? Uh, I haven't noticed that. It's a good, it's an interesting point. Um, Moustakis no, definitely looks like he's still learning second base. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think they should be thinking about moving Shaw there. Um, I would imagine that he's gotten plenty of reps trying to turn it over. Obviously, doing it during the game is going to be different. But I actually think he's, you know, he made a nice diving diving stab at, at second, though I did wonder if, like, somebody had better range, if that would have been a pretty routine, routine stop rather than, like, needing to dive up the middle to be able to turn it around. I don't think it, we're anywhere close to saying that they need to consider moving Shaw there, but it is an interesting point that he hasn't turned any double plays yet. Um, something I'll, I'll look out for more now that that Steven mentioned it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I think looking at um, Moustakas so far, he looks like a guy that's learning second base. Um, and I know making that throw across a diamond from third, it's a very like straight on throw. 
And I think that's where we're seeing Mustaka struggle is that idea that he's got to get his, you know, hips and shoulders turned to make that throw to first base. Or you got to do kind of that sidearm sling. You don't have that ability to just line it up and go direct across the diamond. So, um, yeah, everybody always has to deal with different angles going across the, the diamond. And especially if you've done it for the past, you know, I don't know, 12 years of your life you know all of those angles and you know exactly where those throws need to be at all times. And suddenly if you have to switch, it is, it is probably disorienting, but, and it's different than he played, you know, he came up, he was playing some shortstop or he's drafted as a shortstop. It is different. Shortstop is different than second base, even though they're both in the middle of the diamond. hundred percent, especially when you are trying to turn tough double plays, right? Because I feel like at shortstop, there aren't many different types of double plays that you actually have to turn. Like, and at second base, there are potentially like really awkward turns that you have to be able to perform. Yeah, that turn for a second baseman, I think, to learn that kind of pirouette, I guess, that they have to do, um, that really takes some time and it's difficult. It's not just go out there and you automatically know how to do it. Footwork is a lot of just learned repetition. It is. And then if you've got, you know, you've got a turn you know, the first baseman throw into second base and you've got to give it a, give it a return back is different than, you know, something coming up from around the horn from when a pitcher or a catcher is throwing it down to second and you, you turn it over unless the shortstop is covering. There are a lot of different, you know, angles, a lot of different receiving motions that you have to be able to do and to be able to protect yourself so you don't get spiked a lot of the time too. Like even, even if they do have like the Chase Utley rule and all of that, like you still do have to protect yourself at second base as well. Yeah, uh, we have a question from Tim Braun on Twitter. He asks, why pull Brandon Woodruff after possibly his best inning on Saturday night? Um, um, I think that was a, a pitch count issue. Yeah, he had 100 pitches, and it was Woodruff's first outing of the year. So, And that's that's not only are you getting up close to 100 pitches, but it's not efficient either. So, yeah. you know, it's one thing if a guy's got 100 pitches in like eight innings, but he had 100 pitches, and we're talking about like, what, five innings? What did you, did you think? Did you think uh, Woodruff looked pretty good? I did. Again, I, I think it didn't help that he's just facing a really good lineup. He's not going to get. He's not going to be able to just you know sneak a couple extra strike calls in there. Like he, every batter he had to work against. Yeah, I thought he looked pretty good too. I'm actually looking forward to seeing Corbin Burns on the Sunday getaway day. Uh, getaway day. Yeah. So, but again, it's. It's going to be really difficult for this rotation. You know, the Reds have a pretty good lineup. Um, then they play the Cubs, who obviously are going to be really difficult. Uh, they got the Angels, who are probably going to be all right. But then they got to play the Dodgers. Yeah. You know, that's the first couple of weeks of the season. Like, these pitchers are really going to be put through the grinder here. Man, the Dodgers have been absolutely lighting up the scoreboard, too. Yeah. So it's it's going to be a tough one. Um Brock on Twitter asks, can Yelich go for 163 home runs? Uh, but but really, what do you see his projected total being this year, and uh, what do you think will lead the league in home runs? Oh, man, I have no idea. Um, I, I mean, I still think seeing him kind of the, the 27 to 32 home run range is probably where I would, I would project Yelich. And obviously, if... You know, the power ends up being real. Maybe he'll push 40, um, but I don't know. Do you yeah, see, I was, are, you, are you coming around on maybe him being, a, I, I just don't want to change my opinion on it based on three games. That's, that's my biggest feeling on it. I don't want to change my opinion on it, but again, when we see him driving the ball the opposite field over the wall, 
Yeah. Like, I kind of feel like, oh, that's that's not just he was able to sell out on a couple pitches early in the season and just yank him over the right field wall. Like, he is just firing the ball in all directions. So, that mean you're putting Moustakas up for 40? Moustakas hit opposite field homer. You know, Moustakas is interesting as well because, again, Kansas City's a big ballpark. They took a bunch of guys who were power hitters or potential power hitters who were playing in big ballparks and brought them to, you know, Miller Park. Yeah. I mean, should we be shocked if we see these guys have some career power numbers here? I mean, before you changed your prop bet, you would you would have been. Like I said, I thought about it, you know, when when I thought like oh, the whole team won't hit 231. And then I thought about it. I'm like, no, this there's a lot of power up and down the lineup. We haven't I seen Grandall get going yet. I didn't know we had an opportunity to rethink our answers and then put them in. Well, it's not like they were being entered in real time as we were doing the episode. Well, I thought we were going to have some transparency and we were going to have the integrity of the ballot. And I am being upfront about it. We said on the was go in. I'm being upfront about it, so that's why I feel like it's it's legit. So um, let's see what else do we got. <laughs> oh, we have a question from Beer the Deer on Twitter. Uh, will you be disappointed when Domingo Santana wins MVP, or will you be happy for him? And a lot of this is, you know, obviously Santana was the guy uh, big trade this offseason when they you know traded him for uh, Ben Gamble. Um, yeah, and I mean, yeah. it, again, it was yeah. a difficult situation. And a minor league pitcher. And a minor league pitcher. Um, that, like, I don't remember his name even. No. Noah, Noah Zabalus or something like that. Yeah. Um, again, I think Santana was a difficult situation for the Brewers. I, I don't think they wanted to necessarily part with him, but they didn't have space for him on this roster. Yeah. And I think uh, to, to directly answer the question of will I be uh, disappointed if he wins the MVP, my answer to that is, yeah, I would be disappointed because then that means like something bad happened to Trout and Betts. That'd be really bad. I don't know. what <laughs> Like, they must have gotten hurt or something. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, Domingo Santana very clearly struggled with partial playing time, um, something he talked about. It's something that we know and – Basically, all of his value comes from his bat, and he's going to have to be able to produce at a high level to to make that worthwhile. Um, and I do think that there is something to be said. I, a, no, I don't think that you just kind of can mathematically put up some kind of uh, you know rotation that makes sense and that you kind of just like put everybody into this big algorithm and you can figure out a way to make all of their playing time tick. I don't think that's reasonable. Um, I also don't I also don't think that it's a bad thing to say that you can that a good player fits better somewhere else. I actually don't think that that's that's a bad thing whatsoever. I do you can't if if the Brewers held on to absolutely everybody that could have potentially been useful, they'd have they'd need a 60 man roster. Um at some point you need to make really difficult decisions. So at some point, you need to look at the depth that you've created and say that sometimes we need to part with a a very good player because we need something else structurally on our team. And what the Brewers needed was somebody who could handle both corner outfields and maybe center field in a pinch and do it in a with quality defense and do it in a way that somebody had uh, big league experience already, which is what Ben Gamble brought to brought to the party. 
And it was a role that Domingo Santana didn't fit because if Domingo Santana was there, you would still then need to have someone on the roster that could do what Ben Gamble does. That was a role that they needed to have filled. Do you think, given a choice without having to worry about contracts, but you know they have a guy for another like three seasons, that the Brewers would pick Domingo Santana or Ryan Braun going forward? Oh, I think they'd pick Ryan Braun. You still think it would be Braun? Yeah. Okay. I'm not so sure. Really? Ryan Braun at this age versus if you could give Domingo Santana, um, you know, consistent playing time. I'm saying one or the other is gone. I don't know, man. I still think I still think I I'm going to I think we're going to see Ryan Braun age a lot like Carlos Beltran, which like a couple of years in his you know when he's supposed to be declining and not be any good anymore, he's just going to hit like 300 with 30 homers, and everyone's going to wonder what happened. And then he's going to struggle for a couple of years and go through some injuries. But I there's there's too much talent there. I just think in terms of of his ability to to hit in big spots, his ability to to hit for power. Um, he's still got the talent there. I, I I think it'd be a shame to have the Brewers move on from that for somebody that, um, frankly, is limited. And and yeah, I know that a lot of people will point to Chris Davis and say that everyone said he was limited defensively as well. But well, Braun's limited. Of course, he is. I'm just saying when you're looking at those two outfielders, you have two limited outfielders. And I mean, yeah. if anything, Santana could probably play left and right. Or Braun, you're just going to leave him in left field. Well, but then the question becomes like, who do I think is a better hitter? And I still think that Braun is a better hitter than Santana. Okay, I'm I'm not arguing with you there, but it would be interesting. I mean, do you want the 26 year old outfielder who can hit 30 home runs, or do you want the God? What is Braun now? 34, five, 34. He's getting up there, making yeah. us all take a look in look in the mirror and and come to terms with our age. But I do think that. I do think that Domingo Santana is the type of guy that can just absolutely fall off a cliff. Yes. Right. I mean, we've seen this with like, he reminds me a lot of, uh, of, of Garcia with, I'm blanking on his first name for some reason, Avisel Garcia with the, with the white Sox who absolutely just hit for monster power, but then struggled to hit, to hit for power or, or for any average to the point that he fell away. Like, Santana is the guy that needs he needs to be able to hit for power and he needs to be able to hit for good average. Otherwise, he's not you can't really carry him. And I think that Braun over the track record in terms of just his ability to hit the ball, I I like his swing better. Um, Yeah, I'll I'll still take that pretty much every day of the week. Well, I would always lean on. I like Ryan Braun's swing. Like that is one of the better swings you're ever going to, you know, watch in baseball. So obviously, yes, I I like that swing better. Uh, Wesley Metcalf on Twitter asks, I'm very new to baseball and only saw the back end of last season. Uh, Who is the coolest brewer to follow on Twitter? And if I was getting a jersey, whose should I get? Coolest brewer to follow on Twitter. I don't know. So many of these are like so heavily curated these days by like social media professionals. I don't know. Who do you think? I don't actually follow really any players on i don't follow i tried to follow as few athletes on twitter as possible yeah so do I. um just because uh, I, I don't find their content to usually be that worthwhile and you know there are enough people that sit and like just rag on players online if something goes wrong and i'm like i don't want to be that guy either oh yeah for sure and especially for 
you know, especially if if I have a Twitter account that is occasionally going to critique players on things, you fairly or unfairly, like that's nothing that athletes want to see either. So I'm not going to like follow yeah. people for that. I mean, I guess he's he's not with the Brewers anymore. But if you just want somebody who constantly creates stuff, follow uh, Tim Dillard on Twitter. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, there, he certainly is going to have a lot of content that comes up. I think that Justin Verlander is a pretty good follow uh, on Twitter. I think uh, Adam Jones tends to be a pretty good follow on Twitter. Um, there are some people that would say Trevor Bauer is a good follow on Twitter. That's not we don't, me. yeah, we don't endorse that one. But you can make that call for yourself. Um, a former baseball player uh, who is now retired, but but Brandon McCarthy is an excellent follow on Twitter. Dan Heron's pretty solid. Um, yeah, there are there are a lot of guys, but during the act, so many athletes are being so careful what they do, and I think rightfully so, are being really careful with what they do on on social media. And most of the time, they're actually like farming it out to social media professionals to do all of their content for them. But in terms of who he should get for a jersey, what's your answer for that? I mean, if you want the easy answer, I'd just say go get a Yelich jersey. I think that Yelich is probably the one to do. I think Lorenzo Cain is a good shout. Both because I like Lorenzo Cain. He is kind of your hipster pick of like somebody who's still really good, but like not as many people will have it. Um, but because he also came up through the Brewers too. So you've got like, he is a homegrown talent in a way that like went elsewhere and then came back. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Um, go out and get a Hira jersey if you want something that you can really wear for a bunch of seasons. If you want to say to that come. I was there before. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you um, know, that would be a decent I, one. I think Moustakis is, is kind of an underrated one because then everyone could yell Moose. I was trying to think of somebody who, who doesn't have just like one season. Like that jersey could be. Uh, I know. If you're worried but, about wearing a jersey that the guy's still actually on the team. Yeah, in that's future fair. Seasons. I, I think I think Jeremy Jeffress would be would be cool. I mean, the uh, bra- the Braun like one, just because as a career, you could wear that regardless. And, yeah. um, you know, I think that's always applicable, regardless of how his career ends. If it's in Milwaukee, if he ends up going elsewhere for another season or two before he calls it a day. Um, Ryan Braun's one that, obviously, he's he's always a brewer. Yeah. I think you could get a Craig Council jersey, and then people will be concerned or confused as whether you are celebrating him as a manager or if it's a throwback to when he was a player. Actually, I like that. Get a council jersey. Yeah, I, I'm I'm on board with that one. Go get a Craig Council jersey. Uh, finally, we have uh, Real Tim Sai on Twitter asking, "Do you enjoy listening to Brian Anderson do basketball play by play?" Yeah, I do. I think he's solid. I th- well, I don't think he'd keep rising through the ranks if he was only solid. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, okay. So to be fair, like the people. I will never listen to a game just because Brian Anderson is calling it right. Like uh, we actually watched the Virginia and uh, Purdue game, which was awesome. And they were calling it, but like, I will watch a game called by Bill Walton just because it's called by Bill Walton. Well, that's a, that's a completely different beast. I know when you're talking about that. Yes. That doesn't mean that I like that is a appointment viewing. He's like, Hey Dave, have you ever been to the top of a volcano? Like, did, you see the one, did you see the one where Dave like dared him to eat the the like lit candle on a top of a muffin? And <laughs> no. he did it, <laughs> and then and then Dave Pash basically like about dies laughing, 
And then uh, and he says, I was joking. And then Bill Bill Walton takes the candle out and he goes, oh, yeah, it's so good. It's good. <laughs> uh, yeah. What I will say is I didn't realize how few games Anderson's calling for the Brewers this season. He's maybe there about half the time. Yeah. Um, and like I I will say I like Matt LaPay. And part of it is because I listened to so many Badgers things on the radio so much growing up that like Matt LaPay always going to be a winner for me but we were talking about it earlier this week um i used to not really care for rock but like i i really love him i think rock is i i really enjoy listening to him call a game yes if you would if you would ask me 10 years if in 2019 i would think rock was a great color guy it would have been completely different answers yeah you know when we were listening to him when that first First group of uh, Brewers came up um, in the mid two thousands, you know, with Fielder and Weeks and all those guys. I think the attitude is completely different, and you can hear he's evolved quite a bit. And I give him a lot of credit because there are a lot of guys who are very stagnant on their idea of what baseball is and how the players should play and everything like that. And I think Rock has definitely changed with the times. You know, he he hasn't looked at like this is the way teams are being put together. This is the way that players are being used and said, not in my day. He doesn't do that for the most part. I mean, there's still some times where he'll fall back into some kind of old school trope, but for the most part, I think he's on board with what the front office is doing with what Craig council is doing. And, um, I think it's reflected in a better broadcast. Yeah, and I still think that, you know, and I stand by this, I've said this on the podcast before, is I think one of his strongest attributes is he is the perfect wingman in which he can make whoever is calling the game. If it's Brian Anderson, who he knows for a long time, if it's Matt LePay, who hasn't really called baseball and he needs to kind of guide him through, or whether it's somebody that's coming in from an FS1 broadcast, like Rock, it, you can you can see why he was such a good catcher and a good teammate. He knows exactly how to set people up. He is really conscious of making sure that people feel comfortable. Um, you know, like even his funny things of like when he he compliments Matt LePay on his on his reads, like his ad reads, like he just like goes nuts about it. And Matt LePay is like, I do radio, man. He goes, I, it's just like a really nice moment in which they can, you know, try to to bring some humor to it. He's like, man, if I could read ad reads like you. <laughs> well, and it is interesting because, yeah, he's Rock is the guy that's always there, whether it's LePay, Anderson, you know, Kashan. Um, when they go national, yeah. d- depending on whether it's, you know, Anderson does it with the other team's color guy or if it's, you know, Rock doing it, um, vice versa. So, yeah, he's. it seems like you can basically pair him with anybody. And, like, again, we were talking about it. He did the game with Sophia Minert in, um, in spring training. And it was fun to listen to just because, again, he does so well just working with whoever he's in the booth with. You know, yeah. you, you, you feel and like... It- there are some guys that you feel would probably be condescending and you never get that feeling with Bill Schroeder with whoever he's with in the booth. Yeah. And, and, and I always feel like he genuinely enjoys being in the booth with whoever he's there and enjoys baseball. Yeah. That is a thing that is, there are so many guys. I was going to say, unlike John Smoltz, who seems like maybe doesn't like baseball anymore. But Smoltz isn't even the only one. He's just, you know, the high profile guy that does that. There's so many uh, color commentators that are old, um, you know, former players or just they've been around forever. And you just get that feeling that like 
they don't like baseball. That's the way it comes across with what, you know, the way they, they talk about the game. That is bad for the game. That is bad for the game if the people you're listening to just seem like they have an axe to grind and they don't like what's going on on the field because you're watching the best baseball players to ever play the game right now. Yeah. Whatever 100%. era you're in, whatever's going on on the field that season, that's basically the best baseball that's ever been played. Yeah. You know, so this idea that that people would be angry or upset by the way the game's being played, it's like, you know what? Maybe just appreciate it as the game has gotten better. You know, yeah. regardless of of the way we want to see like, oh, maybe the maybe the they can shorten game times or they can change strategy or something like that to make it more of a throwback. It's still fun to watch, and that should be reflected in the broadcast. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. So, okay, I think we we've done it for the week. So, uh, any last thoughts? No, let's hope they uh, are able to clean up on Sunday. Yeah, let's finish this uh, series off well. Either way, you know what? If it's if they split with the Cardinals in a four game series to start the season, that's still a solid start. Absolutely. So, and anything, again, uh, anything that avoids, you know. Anything that avoids too many negative thoughts coming up right away is is positive. And looking at this April schedule, honestly, if they get through April and they're 500, they're in a pretty decent spot for the rest of the season. Man, that's why I didn't pick. Uh, I didn't pick April for the the prop bet. I saw that schedule. I was like, there's no way I'm picking that month. I mean, the Dodgers twice, St. Louis, like constantly the cubs yeah. yeah it's it's a tough one so it'll be fun we're just getting going um and it should be a good time the rest of the season so again that's going to do it for this week's show uh don't forget you can join our patreon by visiting patreon.com slash mke tailgate patrons at the m and b and ball and glove levels receive the monthly minor league extra podcast as always follow us on twitter at mke tailgate you can submit questions to milwaukee's.tailgate at gmail.com or through our facebook page for milwaukee's tailgate baseball podcast don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, what else? Spotify, Pocket Cast. We're on all of those. So uh, check it out. Uh, you can also leave reviews and help people find the podcast. So thanks for listening and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.